Father, we uh, thank you that you have laid out for us what is going to take place in the future, and you've done that with great specificity. We would ask that you would help us to remember these things, to be watchful, to be able to discern what truth is and what misinformation is which is out there. And even when these articles come around that says Iran's getting ready uh, to attack, Lord, I, I pray that we would just be sober in our thoughts, be able to discern truth and error. And as we get into your word, I would ask for the same thing, Lord. You have provided for us an owner's manual how the church is supposed to operate, what it's supposed to look like, and how we're supposed to respond to those teachings in the word. So we had asked, Lord, that you would help us to apprehend what your word says. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So in First Timothy chapter 5, we're dealing with some elders here, and the elders' remuneration, uh, allegation against an elder, an admonition for an elder, and a predilection of an elder. Those four things. Remuneration is what they get paid. Allegation of you making an, an allegation or a accusatory statement against an elder. An admonition, how you would discipline an elder if an elder was caught in sin. And also the predilection, what uh, you're being partial to in these things are dealt with by Paul as he writes to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. In verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 5, he tells us about elders who direct the affairs of the church who are well, or who direct the affairs of the church well, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. And so when it says that the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, it's talking about cold, hard cash that you need to pay them or you need to give them a side of beef or you need to bring some wheat or some bread or whatever the case might be for those who do the ministering. Paul is telling Timothy that this is the case for all the elders who are in the church. Now, it could be a senior pastor, assisting pastors in our case, you know, that, that's what's happening in our day and age. You have both of those uh, that can serve inside of the church. A lot of times elders will do counseling, but specifically those who are carrying on the teaching inside the church, the teaching ministry, uh, they are worthy of double honor. And this is not in opposition, but in comparison to the widow who is due honor who is truly a widow indeed. And that was just tackled last week. So the widow who is in need, she deserves some income. And there were several qualifications for that type of widow. She had to be over 60 years old, served well inside the body of Christ, raised a, a godly family, those types of things. She deserves some income from the church if nobody is there. She has a family. It's the responsibility of the family to take care of that widow. <clears throat> and so when it comes to honoring her, well, double honor is due the person who teaches and provides that for the church, teaches and preaches uh, to those who are unsaved. Then there are those who serve as pastors and assisting pastors in all different denominations, and this is supposed to be universal throughout the church. And, of course, he is quoting here Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4 in the Old Testament. says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. And the habit used to be that you would have an oxen, and this oxen would be strapped to a board or a large beam that would go across the center point 
And in this center point, there would be a stone carved out somehow, maybe a trough, and there would be a grinding wheel that would be attached to the end of this board, and it would go around the circle. So the board would have a fulcrum, and the board would go around like this. As the ox was tied to the end of the board, he would walk around, and that wheel that's attached to that same fulcrum would go around on the stone, and it would crush the wheat underneath. So the ox would walk around, or it would be the chaff. The chaff and the wheat, that would be laid out underneath the the, uh, oxen, and he would drag something around that circle. And as the oxen was doing that, he was allowed, the oxen was allowed to reach down and eat some of the grain that was being uh, trodden by the ox. And some people would put a muzzle over the ox so the ox wouldn't eat the grain. Now, you could imagine how we'd do that today. People would be screaming to high heaven because there would be saliva from the ox that would be going around on the wheat. And, you know, we have such high standards today. And I won't go into how many insects we actually eat every year. But, you know, it's that type of thing that was going on. But you were to muzzle the ox. If the ox is doing all the work and it's hard work... But the ox was up to the task. Let him eat of the grain as he's going around. He's not going to eat all the grain. Just let him eat. And so that's what he uses to illustrate the idea that the pastor is supposed to receive some remuneration from uh, those in the body. Now, a pastor may receive income from the ministry, but it's not commanded. Uh, It certainly is available uh, for anyone to do that because Paul was an example of this. Now, some would say, no, it is commanded in Scripture. Well, Paul was an example of this where uh, he went and he met up with Priscilla uh, and Aquila, a native of Pontius. They had recently come from Italy. They were Italians, and, and the, the wife Priscilla and Aquila. And because Claudius had ordered that all Jews had to leave Rome, well, when Paul went to see them and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And when he worked with them, he got an income, and then he would go every Sabbath to the synagogue and reason in the synagogue. Now, he wasn't receiving any income at all, and also in the church of Corinth. He would often visit, or a couple times he visited the church of Corinth, and he received nothing from them, but he received something from the churches in Macedonia. So it's not always the case that somebody has to receive an income from the church where they're ministering, and it can be a benefit to the church if that's not the case, but it is certainly available and it is commanded by God that if it is available, he is able to receive it. It's command for the church body in general. But again, the pastor doesn't have to uh, receive that. And no man, I believe, should ever choose to become a pastor as a profession. And what I mean is, he has to be called. There shouldn't ever be anyone who says, I'm going to become a pastor because I think I can make a living at it. Wrong thing to do. Uh, There are so many problems. The only way that somebody, I believe, remains is either because they're stupid or they're called by God. It's going to be one or the other. They're a glutton for punishment or God says, it's okay, you have my grace and... His grace is sufficient for anyone who gets involved in that. In in Hebrews chapter 5, you know, you might want to turn there. In Hebrews chapter 5, there's a story of how in the Old Testament, the priests, they didn't get to appoint themselves. They had to be chosen, especially the high priest had to be chosen. In Hebrews chapter 5, 
in verse 1, it says, Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. In chapter 5, verse 2, it reads, He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one, here's the key verse, no one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, when we started the ministry uh, here at Calvary Chapel Lakeside, I went through a period of time where I thought God was calling me, and I came to the conclusion, I could do this. I could do this. Okay, this is what I have to do. I can get everything in, in line. It's no problem. The Lord's calling me, I think, but I can do this. It's like under my own steam. And then the Lord, he just spoke to me. He goes, hey, look at Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. This is not because of your ability. And I think this is for every pastor who is out there. You don't do it because of your own abilities. Because our own abilities always fall short. They're not perfect. We're always going to make mistakes. You have to offer uh, or go to God and ask forgiveness for your own sins as well as for the sins of the people and interceding for them. But he just completely spells out a priest cannot appoint himself. And I believe neither can a pastor appoint himself has to be called by God. And if you do that, even when I was in seminary, we had this uh, one group that we would get together and we'd just talk about things for about two hours. And the, uh, the guy who was teaching it, he'd come in and he'd set up some stuff for us and he'd give us some assignments and he would say, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to write down your calling that God called you because he told us, you're going to have to refer back to that to remind yourself that God called you to this, and this isn't something that you decided to just take up as a profession. And if it's any consolation with that, if somebody wants to look at it as a profession, only one in ten pastors retire as a pastor. It means they're usually bivocational. One in ten. Now, I don't know how conservative or how liberal that estimate is, but uh, only 10% of the pastors are retiring because they have been pastors. It gives you some kind of idea of what you have to do in order to fulfill ministry. He goes on to say in verse 19, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. So first we had remuneration. Now we have allegations. If there is an allegation that is brought against an elder for something that is going on, uh, maybe he's pilfering the uh, money in the church, and that's always something that you want to be careful of. The pastor shouldn't always have his hands directly on the money in the church. It should be somebody else that is taking care of it. And if checks are written by the pastor, there's always a uh, person or persons that get to follow up and say, well, what was this spent for, and, and where's this money going to? And that's always good. Uh, my brother, I think I've mentioned this before, he used to go to a church in Mira Mesa and the pastor was Barry Menko. And Barry Menko uh, originally uh, was uh, thrown into prison because he pilfered the money from the church. Well, he got out and got saved, and, you know, or he was saved, and he repented of his sins, and he started another church, and he was doing great. Well, he had 10 bank accounts, and he went to prison again because he was pilfering the money from the church. And it was just, you know, 
It's not good to do that. Uh, I think not only are there consequences in this life, but there are consequences in the next life. And so it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And if you have a love of money, don't even go into ministry. Don't, don't even plan that to see how you can use the money for your own benefit. And even when it comes to charge cards, like I have a couple of charge cards, you know, Fiji, here I come. I could take the church charge card and do that. And that would be a mistake, a complete mistake to do something like that. And somebody checks on, well, what was this spent for? And what was that spent for? And there have been times where, especially now, you go to Amazon and you probably have a couple of credit cards on there because you're ordering things. Well, I order things for myself and I order things for the church. Well, one time I ordered things for myself on the church card, <laughs> you know, and, I, and Kim pointed that out. Yeah, what was this for? Oh, you know, so it's time for me to reimburse the church because I didn't click that little thing to get it in the right category. And so those mistakes happen and somebody's there to check on it. And that's always good uh, that somebody is making sure that money is not being spent incorrectly. And so if two or three people came up and said, hey, Pastor Bill, what are you doing with this money here? Well, that would be an accusation. Two or three reliable people that are coming forward. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6 says, On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of just one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first to put him to death, and then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. So even in the Old Testament... There had to be two or three witnesses to carry out a capital offense, but also to adjudicate a crime, you had to have two or three witnesses. And this is repeated in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So if you know somebody who's doing something wrong that is an elder in the church, you have to have a couple of witnesses, not just one. Now he goes on in verse 20. Those who sin are to rebuke, be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. Last week I talked about uh, Ravi Zacharias and what he had done. Uh, if, I don't know if I mentioned it last week, but if you want to find out what happened with him and his ministry, RZIM Ministries, uh, you can look up uh, Pastor Mike Winger. Uh, he is a Calvary Chapel pastor. I think he's in Bellflower, Long Beach area. And he did a whole YouTube presentation about the investigation that was done into his life. And uh, he, he does a good job going through it. Uh, Mike Winger is very upset with um, what Ravi Zacharias did. But you can look that up. But he has been rebuked publicly, even though he is deceased. Uh, there's a question whether or not he was even saved. Because when the accusations came out, uh, he continued in the behavior uh, which he shouldn't have. And so that's a case where in our modern day, it just happened this last year, where somebody who was an elder inside the church was rebuked for his behavior and he's rebuked publicly. And so that's how the Lord says, carry these types of things out. So we have remuneration, we have allegation, and we have the admonition of what is supposed to take place with elders if they're uh, caught in a sin. Then... Uh, going on with that, uh, this idea of public announcement of sins. Now, we have done that at least on one occasion in this church. Uh, when the church was young, there was an individual, it's probably the third or fourth year into the ministry, uh, an individual was in the church and he was, quote unquote, in leadership or in a position of leadership. And what took place was he, he allowed us to get involved down in Mexico. 
he had a particular ministry where we'd go down there and we'd build a, a working on a church in Mexico, building a church. And later on, he uh, we would have conversations, and he told me that he was um, married to a Wiccan, uh, and so. She was an unbeliever involved in witchcraft, who would be called white witchcraft, but he was inside the church and really operating, although he was not formally declared as an elder, he certainly would have been looked to as one. And we would go down to Mexico with him several times, and just one day he decided, that's it, I'm done, I'm not going to church anymore, I'm moving in with this other woman, and he left his wife and he tried to justify it, and there was no justification for it, and it affected uh, many inside the church. And uh, the Lord has a way of putting me in contact with those people outside the um, those people. There have been a few that God has put me in contact with them after they have left the church. And it's a funny place to have this happen. It's happened on more than one occasion. It's at Home Depot. Uh, when Home Depot used to be at the old Levitt's building, which is now, I think, uh, Toyota uh, of El Cajon over there, I was walking up towards the doors, and lo and behold, look who's walking towards me. And I got a chance to talk to him, and I asked him if he wanted to repent of this, and he said, no. I said, are you living with her? Are you sleeping with her? He goes, well, you don't usually move in with somebody if you're not sleeping with them. And I and I was just, I was baffled. And, and so I told the whole church. I let the church know what was supposed to be going on. Uh, even Matthew eighteen fifteen says, if your brother sins against you, will he sin against the entire church? I asked him privately about this. If he wanted to repent, he would not do so. And so I told it to the entire church. When I did that in the church, there was uh, at least one person that was living with somebody else. And they left the church because of that. Uh, because I was willing to point out what was going on. She came back later and said that she was really disheartened by that, but she understood that that's what Scripture had to say. And the reason these things are done publicly is so that it's a warning to everyone else. And it's not a pleasant thing to do. It's not fun. Uh, Matter of fact, it is very hurtful to the body itself. And scripture tells us how we're supposed to act with that. If somebody who is a brother or a sister, they call themselves a brother or sister and they're sexually immoral, we're not even supposed to eat with them. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he explains this, Paul does. He says, I've written you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, or a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. And, you know, that is, that's tough to say that. And now I am long-suffering. If somebody is caught in a sin like this, or participating in it, I provide several opportunities. I don't just come in and say, off with their heads, and that's it, and they're to be done away with. You want to deal gently with those who are in a a state of sin, and you want to give several opportunities uh, to repent of that sin. And especially when doing to others as you would have them doing to you, how would you like to be responded to if somebody came up and asked you uh, to change your behavior, and, and how would you respond to them? Uh, and the Lord is gracious with us. He is merciful to us. How many times have you repeated a sin since you've been a Christian? 
And also, if you take some of the back information that is in this particular chapter, when it comes to older men and younger men and older women and younger women, you're not supposed to show partiality in how you deal with them as well. Could you imagine having a favorite child and letting that child know they are the favorite child? Do you think that's going to cause problems? Uh, Like Jesus, was he Mary's favorite? Well, probably, but she better not let the other kids know that Jesus was Mary's favorite if that was indeed the case. She needed to love all the kids equally. I can even remember... Uh, I had three brothers, four boys in a household uh, under our parents. And I remember the parent, our, my mom, the question being directed to the mom, which one's the favorite? And we would always argue back and forth. Oh, you're the favorite. You're the Mr. Goody two shoes, you know, always being arguing back and forth on that. And I remember my mom always saying, I love you all equally. And she would say that over and over and over to us, that we're all loved equally. Uh, my oldest granddaughter, she has a tendency to come up and say, I'm your favorite granddaughter, aren't I? And I say, you are my most favorite oldest granddaughter. Absolutely, you are. And so, you know, you just change it a little bit, but we're not supposed to have favorites like that, and especially in ministry. Do not have favorites when it comes to carrying out the will of God. And showing partiality is forbidden, especially in matters of judicial account. In Proverbs twenty four twenty three, to show partiality in judging is not good. Whoever says to the guilty, you are innocent, peoples will curse him and nations denounce him. But it will go well with those who convict the guilty and rich blessings will come upon them. Malachi 2, 9 says... So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Now we are prone to showing partiality. We have our favorites. We have our preferences. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-one says to show partiality is not good yet a man will do wrong for a piece of bread. In other words, if he's hungry, he'll do wrong and show partiality or have his mind changed or in a court of law and on a jury will change his mind if he's going to benefit in some way. So we are prone to partiality. Also, we are considered sinners if we show partiality or favoritism. James chapter 2 in the New Testament, verse 1 says, my brothers, as believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Why do you think this comes up so much? It's because we show favoritism. And God says, don't. In that same chapter, verse 8, says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And then finally, Jesus was not one who showed partiality. Luke chapter 20, verses or verse 21, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So it was even recognized by those, the Jews, that he was not partial in what he did. And remember, favoritism leads to exclusionary behavior where you will exclude somebody because you have favorites. Now, this is really pronounced in junior high, uh, middle school. Especially you get a bunch of girls together. Now I have three daughters. And they would have 
friends who were girls and there was always this pecking order they were always vying for a pecking order and and there would be some girls that would just be ruthless at the top quote of the pecking order and then they might fall out of favor because of something and and just brutal in the things that they would say and i think girls are more brutal than boys boys just hit they'll just they'll just rear back and just hit if they get upset girls they find that little serpent tongue it just comes right out and they say things that are demeaning and they're just divisive and it's a problem little girls those sweet little girls that you raise and you know they're in their little dresses and they have their ponytails and all of that just sinners sinners waiting to come to full bloom is all they are and and we want to make sure that that type of partiality is not taking place because then, especially little girls, they get hurt and they cry. Boys become destructive usually uh, in, their beha- in their behavior. But girls, they, they just fall into states of depression and they cry and they mope and, and it's difficult for them. And even Jacob, remember Jacob had his favorite. Who was his favorite? It was Joseph. And then there was Jacob after Joseph. Who was his favorite? It was Benjamin after that. So he had his favorite. And what did all the other brothers do? The other brothers wanted to kill Joseph because he was, they were so jealous of him. They just wanted to do away with him. And in Deuteronomy, in the law of the Lord, 21 verses 15 through 17, it talks about if a man had two wives. Now, you're not supposed to multiply wives, but back in that culture, it was something that took place. In verse 15, it says, If a man has two wives, and he loves one but not the other, and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love, when his will, or when he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves, in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. You see how that works? God's saying, do not show partiality in carrying out the things of the Lord. Make sure you do it the way it's spelled out. Don't have your favorites over there. Now, inside, like I said, we do have our favorites, but we dare not act on those desires when it comes to the things of God. And examples in showing favoritism, are you more um, agreeable to favoritism to somebody who is rich than to somebody who is poor? I've seen this a lot. Uh, I've worked for some wealthy uh, people in my time. And I've seen this favoritism come in, even in the way that they talk uh, to an individual who is wealthy. Um, It's something that is a scourge on all of us when we cure ourselves out like that. But we should treat the poor as equally as we treat the rich. Or one child over another or ministering or counseling inside the church we should not hold favorites and even in business practices now that's a whole nother subject that you could get into Uh, you know you have the crony capitalism or crony socialism and there are favorites there all the time and there is evil at the depths of that type of practice and we want to make sure that we are not doing that then Verse 22 says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now this idea of laying on hands. uh, There is this um, laying on of hands. The phrase is used for, I'm going to lay my hands on you. You know, I, I saw this video, foolish woman. I've seen a couple of videos of foolish women where they think they're going to hit a guy. 
and it doesn't turn out well when they think they're going to hit a guy. And most of these women uh, that do it, and I've even seen, I, I've seen small women hit big women. Just big mistake. That's a laying on of hands. And they end up getting a black eye or getting knocked to the ground. And I've explained to you before how um, when I see these types of things, I get a sick sense, a sick S-I-C-K, sense of justice out of it. Like, you got, you deserve that, you know, on the inside. And my evil thoughts are, yeah, it's what I do. And I go, oh, we're so bad. We're so bad in thinking those types of things. But the laying on of hands on someone could have been done for malicious purposes in the Old Testament. For instance, Abraham was told not to lay a hand on Isaac when God stopped him from sacrificing Isaac. It says, do not lay a hand on him in Genesis chapter 22 verse 12. That's what God told him. He goes, I see you're willing to sacrifice your own son, your only son, but don't do it. Do not lay a hand on him. And so when it comes to laying on hands, it could be for malicious purposes, even taking somebody's life. Then there was Reuben who wanted to spare Joseph from his brothers. He, he told his brothers, do not lay a hand on him. And they threw him in the cistern because Reuben wanted to rescue Joseph. But when Reuben left and he came back and all of a sudden Joseph is gone, What's going to happen then? But he wanted to spare Joseph from his brothers. And that's in Genesis 20, or 37, verses 21 and 22. Then there was Nehemiah. Remember Nehemiah who built the walls and he had Sanballat and Tobiah and they were opposing him all the time. And when he first showed up to the city of Jerusalem there, there were these merchants that would be outside around the walls and they would want to sell things on the Sabbath. And they weren't supposed to be doing that. They weren't supposed to be conducting business on the Sabbath. And Nehemiah told them, and I'm, I'm just paraphrasing, I'm going to lay some hands on you if you guys are out there on the Sabbath. And, and I'll read it to you, what it says. Once or twice, the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. In other words, I'm going to pummel you guys if you are showing up out there again. Remember, you was the cupbearer to the king. And he was going to put on some boxing gloves, maybe even barehanded, MMA fighter, and he was going to go out there and take care of those guys. And he said, from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. And then there's laying on of hands that was done for ceremonial purposes, like the scapegoat in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 20. And, and, and 21, this is where uh, there was one goat that was sacrificed and its blood was sprinkled on the altar. And then there was a goat that the high priest would come up, lay his hands on and confess the sins of Israel. And those sins would be transferred to the goat and the goat would be led into the wilderness. And once that was done, then the, the day of atonement was completed and, and there was nothing left to be done. But it was ceremonial purposes of laying hands on the goat, transferring sins, all for ceremony. And then there were people that had their hands laid on them, or excuse me, the people laid their hands on the Levites, and the Levites placed their hands on uh, some bulls, and the bulls were sacrificed, and it was all for ceremonial purposes of appointing the Levites for their works of service, that the people said, okay, you are the ones who are appointed to this. It's like not a transfer of authority, but just a recognition, a commendation, so to speak, that the Levites were supposed to go out and carry out these specific purposes for the Lord. And then there were people who laid their hands on the Levites, consecrating them for service, and the Levites transferring them onto the bulls, 
but then there were the anointing of Joshua and the new leaders of Israel. Joshua was placed into a position of leadership in Israel. And before that happened, Moses comes up and he lays his hands on Joshua. And it's like the transference of authority so that all could see. It's not that Moses had electricity coming through his hand and going into Joshua and making him energized to do the work. That's not what the laying on of hands is. Uh, I can remember when I was on my search, uh, trying to find God, so to speak. I went uh, to Southwestern College, the gymnasium that was there. Yuri Geller was there. Yuri Geller is this quote-unquote psychic that could do things. And I was just checking things out. And the place was packed. There was probably, the floor was packed. The bleachers were packed. There was probably two or 3,000 people in there. And he was giving instruction to the people to, and he had this table up on the stage and everybody brought these watches that weren't working. And back then we had the analog watches, you know, we didn't have the digital watches that we have now. And he had placed the watches up there and he'd pick up some laugh. There were just parts of watches that would be up there, but uh, they were broken watches. And so the watches were there and he would take his microphone and he'd put his microphone over the watches and he'd tap it and say, see, there's, there's no ticking there. And then he had give the instruction to the people all two or 3,000 of them to yell with their mind, not out loud, but yell with their mind, work. That's what everybody did. And so he goes, one, two, three, and there was silence in the room, but everybody was screaming in their minds, work. And of course, he put the microphone up there and watches started to tick. And you're just going, ooh, you know, why is that happening? But then he, he did it three times. And every time he did it, there was more ticking that we commanded those watches to be correctly working by yelling with our minds the power of psychokinesis and, you know, all of that. <clears throat> that's what he is promoting. By the way, I think that's all either hokey or of the devil. So stay away from it. But there was somebody, I was sitting on the aisle, in the center aisle, and I was looking up over to my right, a few seats ahead of me, and as soon as he said, work, I'd see this guy, he goes, with his fingers, like some power is going to come out from his fingers and make these watches work. That's not what the laying on of hands is. <clears throat> if somebody thinks that you go to church, you lay hands on people, and it's a bzzz, you know, this, this idea that electricity or some type of spiritual power is going to come through that. Or, or the church, Bethel, the grave sucking. Remember I talked about that before? Bethel is teaching that you go to the graves of some of these past saints, saints that were blessed, and you sprawl out on the grave, and hopefully some of that spiritual power that was in the body of that individual is transferred to you, and you get the power that... That's nuts. That's just a doctrine of a demon. You want to stay away from that stuff. That is not what the laying on of hands is all about. Now, in the New Testament, the chief priests and the scribes wanted to get Jesus. Here, again, it's for malicious intent. Luke 20, verse 19, and the chief priests and the scribes, the same hour, sought to lay hands on him. They wanted to get him, rough him up, and even kill him. Jesus told his disciples that they were in danger of others laying their hands on them. That the disciples, they would be turned over to the synagogue and people would lay their hands on them and flog them and they would be persecuted. And Jesus warned them of that in Luke chapter 21, verse 12. And then Jesus also laid hands for the purposes of healing. He would pray for somebody. He would lay hands on them. They would be healed like the guy who was blind that Jesus said, here's mud in your eye. He put mud in his eye. 
after he spit on the ground, made that mud, and then he placed his hands on him, he prayed for him, and he was healed. And then Ananias laid his hands on the apostle Paul, and he received his sight after being on the road to Damascus when he was blinded, when Jesus met him there in Ananias. I'll read it to you in Acts chapter 9, verse 12. It says, in a vision, this is where Paul had seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. In verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. So he placed his hands on the individual for the purposes of healing. Inside the church, it, uh, James chapter 5 says, If there are any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church, anointing him with oil, placing their hands on them, and they pray for them to receive healing. So this is something that is biblical as well. And then receiving the Holy Spirit and receiving spiritual gifts. I've been to services before, and I've done it before, where you pray for somebody to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit or a spiritual gift. And we know that in 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, this is where Paul talks about how he prayed for Timothy and he received a gift through the laying on of the apostle Paul's hands. And I think that gift was probably the gift of teaching, and there was probably some other gifts along with that, but that was the gift that was given to Timothy. And in this context that's here, do not be quick about the laying on of hands. If somebody comes and they want a spiritual gift, they want healing, to go, well, Timothy says, I shouldn't be quick to lay on hands. That's not what it's talking about. Or it's not talking about, well, I shouldn't be quick to lay on hands to destroy your life. You know, it, it's not talking about that either. It's talking about giving your approval a commission and a commendation for somebody to perform ministry. Because it's in the context of these elders here. In Acts chapter 6, verse 5, we know that this was the case with Stephen and Philip and Procornus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmanus. I'll get these names right. Nicholas from Antioch. All these guys were deacons and they had their hands laid on them to take care of the widows and the administration of the widows. It was a commission for them. And then Paul and, or Saul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit said, separate from me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work which I have called them to. And so they laid their hands on them, commissioned them for the work, and it was a commendation for those who they would go and minister to. And so that's why it says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Do not share in the sins of others. What this means is, if you just lay hands on anybody. Oh, you want to minister? Okay, let me place my hands on you and pray for you and all the elders will do that and you'll be sent off. That's great. Don't just do that willy-nilly. Know who the person is because they may have some sins that they're involved in and if you pray for them and the sins are revealed, then it may look like you've given approval to their behavior. And so he says, don't be so quick to do this. And by the way, he says, keep your own life pure. So that's the admonition, the exhortation that he gives to him. So what about all this, this idea of the elders? God is telling us how the church is supposed to operate. He's given specific instructions for the pastors, what they're supposed to do. Elders inside the church, especially if they sin, what is supposed to take place after that. But this is for the body to have all the knowledge of what's supposed to be going on in the church. The church needs to know how the leadership is supposed to be acting 
inside the church. So we're learning what God's will is for the body. Receiving an income in ministry, that's for the elders whose job is preaching and teaching. How we handle the allegations against an elder in the church and partiality and the exercise of that in ministry and even outside the ministry is not good. And then we also have to be watchful. And as, as I started out here with Iran and everything that's going on, we're being watchful. But God wants us to occupy. He wants us to just pay attention to what's going on. He's given us specific tasks to follow through with. This is how the church is supposed to be organized. But we're doing all this and watching at the same time. Titus 2.13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to be watching what's going on, but doing the ministry the whole time. And if we have an earthquake, if something's going on, and we're going, oh, what's that rumbling over there? I don't know, but uh, nothing's come of it, so let's get back to work in the ministry. That's how we're supposed to operate. In Luke chapter 12, verse 35. It says, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose masters find them watching when he comes. And I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. That's our job. We're supposed to be watching, but ministering. Know what's going on in the church. Know what our task is. Know what the directives are that Timothy has been given here. But watch. My prayer for you is that you're paying attention to what's going on internationally. That you are reading newspapers or newspapers. What are those? You're you're reading information from the blogs you go to or the websites you go to, the internet uh, news sites. Be able to be discerning. Look at the scripture first. Don't be led astray when somebody tells you this is the way things are supposed to go and it's really calling evil good. You know the scripture says, no, that's not the way we're supposed to go. And so you're able to govern yourself and your own life, give instructions to other and others, and the whole time you're waiting for the return of Christ. If this battle takes place in the next 10 weeks between Israel and Israel, they're ready to go to war with Iran. If that takes place... We're out of here. You know, it, it's a couple of weeks maybe on either side or maybe a year on either. Hey, we're, we're out of here. And that's what I'm looking forward to. And all the problems we've ex- experienced here, they're going to seem like nothing when we're there. But in the meantime, let's follow the instruction of the Lord and we'll be blessed because of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have decided to use Paul to instruct Timothy to let us know how we're supposed to respond inside the church to the elders which are inside the church and how we're not supposed to show partiality but to bless them lord whatever ministry we may be under and we would ask lord that you would help us to gain this information not only for ourselves and that the church might be healthy but for expressing it to others to leading others into truth and as we do all this as we carry out the day-to-day tasks that you have called us to especially to be a witness to others we ask that you would help us to always be looking up waiting for that day, for the days are evil here, and we long for the day when we will be with you in heaven. May that day come speedily, in Jesus' name. And the church said, please stand.